0: Amen, amen. Thank you, Pastor Donnie. Well, if you have a Bible, I invite you to join me in Psalms 42 and 43. I'm going to read uh, both Psalms together, and then we're going to pray, um, and then um, look at this marvelous passage of Scripture, Psalms 42 and 43. Uh, Virtually every commentator sees these two Psalms being uh, one Psalm. Uh, Many Hebrew manuscripts have them as one Psalm. Uh, and you'll also notice Psalm 43 has no, su- uh, uh, no title, no uh, superscription, which is rare for these uh, psalms. Most notably, there is this common refrain three times, uh, chapter 42, verse 5, uh, chapter 42, verse 11, chapter 43, verse 5. Uh, and that is the psalmist preaching to his soul, hope in God, for I shall still praise him. I'll read it for us. To the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng, and lead them in procession to the house of God, with glad glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you downcast, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man deliver me, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth, and let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And this is God's word. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray you would open up the eyes of our heart to understand it, appreciate it, apply it. We pray that you would do this by the work of your spirit to the glory of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, I got something for you kids before you run off now. Uh, How many of you kids know uh, little Kai? Um, recently, his mother posted a video of Kai asking a question, and I thought it was a good introduction to the Psalms that we're looking at uh, today. They gave me permission to play the little video. So uh, let's see that, Donnie. When is, um, when is the coronavirus going to stop? <laughs> I mean, that is a cute kid, isn't it? Uh, and a great question. When is the coronavirus i uh, gonna stop. Good question, buddy. Um, we've been asking many questions during this COVID time, haven't we? We've been asking why, uh, who, when. We've asked questions that range from everything from PPP to TP, from face masks to football, from public schools to public worship, uh, from drive-by graduations to drive-through agitation. From bands to bats. Uh, We've had all kinds of questions uh, during this COVID crisis, and we still do. Well, Psalm 42 is filled with questions. Uh, Psalm 42 and 3, it's it's a lament. Uh, It asks questions of when, where, and why. And one of the main questions that is being raised in these two psalms, which are really one psalm, is the question about attending public worship. The writer is a musician, notice chapter 43, verse 4, you uh, heard me uh, read that verse that he wants to praise God with uh, the instrument, the lyre. And he is has experienced the joy of worship in the house of God, chapter 42, verse 4. But he has been denied that privilege of being in the house of God, chapter 42. Verse 2, when he says, when shall I come and appear before God, that's a a statement about uh, the corporate assembly, the worship in Jerusalem in the central sanctuary. Consequently, he is dry, he's dejected, he's overwhelmed, he's disheartened due to his inability to participate in worship at the temple. He seems to be far in the north. Verse 6 speaks of the land of uh, the Jordan of Hermon and Mount Mazar. Um, And we don't know exactly why he can't get to Jerusalem. It's possible that uh, this individual is in exile, uh, maybe in Babylon. It might, even though it's written by the sons of Korah, be about David, who could be running from Absalom, like Psalm 3. Uh, He may be some kind of prisoner of war. Or it's possible that he just lives a long way away. You can't just make a trip down to Jerusalem anytime you want. He could be in a conflict, but most likely uh, it's some kind of sickness that is preventing him from worshiping in the temple. Imagine that, a sickness preventing us from public worship. Now, he's not prevented from praying. He's not prevented from singing. You see him doing that. Chapter 42, verse 8, at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. But there is something missing in his spiritual life, namely the corporate aspect of his spiritual life. And we all can relate to this, can't we? We have an individual faith. You know, no crisis is preventing us from singing to God. No crisis is preventing us from praying to God. But we have been, uh, for a season, prevented from assembling together, as Hebrews 10 uh, teaches us uh, not to, to neglect. We've been, we've been out of sorts. Uh, because of it. Now added to this struggle the psalmist also speaks of the presence of enemies that are all around him. And so it's a psalm that has plea and lament but it also has hope. It has hope but he has to preach this hope to him because his circumstances and his surroundings don't seem to be very optimistic. They don't seem to be positive. And so he's dealing with what some writers through the years uh, have referred to as spiritual depression. So whether or not uh, we were in a, this quarantine season, we, we wouldn't even need that to identify with this psalm. All you need to identify with a psalm is to have some experience of darkness, some experience of, of spiritual dryness, of, as some call it, spiritual depression. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones has a book called Spiritual Depression in which he opens up with Psalm 42, talking about how uh, the psalmist is preaching to his own soul. Charles Spurgeon went through uh, many uh, seasons of depression, a lot of it due to physical illness, both he and his wife. And we know that Elijah, uh, after a great victory in 1 Kings 18, is under a broom tree and asks God to kill him. Uh, he is under this broom tree in great sorrow Moses had seasons of uh downcast as well so maybe you're in that season maybe you have find, you've you've found yourself in uh you're in the spiritual doldrums you lack joy you lack passion you lack enthusiasm you're you're not desiring the Bible um, you're not enjoying singing the great hymns of the faith you're having a, a broom tree kind of moment you're having a psalm forty two kind of moment. Well, I love the honesty of the Bible. I love the honesty of the Psalms. I love that you see if you're in that season, you're not strange. You're not uh, an exception. That's, that's actually part of life in this fallen world. We're gonna have various emotional experiences, spiritual experiences in our, our journey of faith. And we could dwell on why you have these seasons, but that's really not the focus of, of these Psalms. Rather, I want you to see what this worshiper does when he's in these moments, and let this be instructive for you. The the psalmist lets himself go, as one writer says, makes himself think, and then pulls himself together. He lets himself go in prayer, speaking honestly, candidly to God. He makes himself think, thinking about past grace, thinking about God's character, and he pulls himself together by preaching to his soul. Three times he has to do it. And it's not resolved at the end of the psalm. That guy's situation hasn't changed. Um, but you get a sense that it's, it's, but it's, it's helped. Uh, and it's what we do in this Christian life as well. So here's the structure to these two psalms, which are really one psalm. There are three stanzas, each having the same refrain. Uh, I already mentioned that, uh, that threefold refrain. And these stanzas contain prayer, lament, reflection, and preaching to his soul. So stanza number one, I'm just labeling it as longing for God and participation in public worship. It's written by the Sons of Korah, which I think would be a great band name, don't you, Donnie? The Sons of Korah. Uh, this was a group of priests that were in charge of the ministry of singing, um, God's always had uh, musical leaders. That's an important thing for us to realize. In fact, you go back and read 2 Chronicles 20. That's in that uh, uh, passage where Jehoshaphat is overwhelmed by the enemy and he doesn't know what to do. And he prays that famous prayer, Lord, we are powerless and we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And God uses the sons of Korah to sing. And God gives the victory uh, to his people. They were appointed by David for musical leadership. And uh, there are a collection of them, I think 11 total, that you find in the Psalms of the Sons of Korah. And unlike the Psalms of David, the Sons of Korah have more of a corporate emphasis uh, because again, they're in charge of leading corporate worship. And that's this theme you're seeing in these two Psalms is the desire to be together in the public assembly. Now this word maskel, uh, is is the Hebrew word we don't translate it because we're not sure as to what it means, but uh, if you look at the the uh, the root of this word, it it basically means to instruct or to teach, and so it's a song that teaches us important lessons. Okay, so I want to work through the stanzas and then offer some lessons from this this mascal. Okay, um, verse one, desiring God's presence, he says. He is longing for God like a thirsty deer. So some of you deer hunters, you, you could probably teach this better than I could. Uh, his, his whole being is panting after God. And why is that? Well, it's because he's not at home with the ungodly. You see, if you're, if you're at home with the ungodly, if you're at home with uh, the enemies, then uh, you're drinking from another fountain. You're, you're drinking from a different kind of stream. But true worshipers of God are not at home in this world. They're not at home with the ungodly. They are thirsty for God and for his presence. We realize that we, we must drink or die. <laughs> right? We must have God. We must have his, his presence to nourish and strengthen and enliven us. We, we cannot have a substitute fountain, a functional savior, that we think will satisfy us. Functional saviors will not satisfy us. We are made for this God and our souls are thirsty until we drink from his presence, from his grace. And we satisfy this thirst by being with him, by communing with him. Only he can satisfy it. You see this kind of thing pop up in the Psalms like Psalm 63. "O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. Uh, in a dry and weary land, my soul thirsts for you. Or, or Psalm 84, 1 and 2 speaks of this as well. The point is you you, you can't accept an alternative. There is only one who can satisfy. And the psalmist realizes that. Now verse 2, he says, he adds to the, the opening verse, my th- soul thirsts for God, for the living God. He gets that, he is the living God. That's the one who satisfies us. Not some idea, but the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Again, he's got the temple in view here. God had always promised to meet his people in that temple. But the psalmist can't get there. He's detached. He's isolated. And he's dejected because of it. He longs to worship God with the people of God in the house of God. And so do we, don't we? Now remember, this is a song. So why would you sing this song? You can imagine assembling together and singing this song. And why would he write this song? Well, doesn't this song foster an anticipation for public worship? It creates a sense. If people were singing this before they would assemble in a gathering, uh, they would look forward to that. They would see public gathering as a gift and not as a burden. And I think that will happen uh, hopefully, as we reassemble again, that we, we always recognize what a great privilege it is uh, to be together. I, I said a couple of weeks ago, I think uh, uh, the Spanish flu back in uh, the early 1900s that uh, swept through uh, uh, the country. And Francis Grimke, pastor in Washington, D.C., uh, after the services had been banned for a month in October of uh, 1919, uh, he preached a sermon in uh, November, in which he said this, the fact that for several weeks we have been shut out from the privileges of the sanctuary has brought home to us as never before that the church, what the church has really meant to us. We hadn't thought perhaps very much of the privilege while it lasted, but the moment it was taken away, we saw at once how much it meant to us. Now, he was saying that almost a hundred years ago, and we're saying it again. It is a privilege. And the psalmist here is saying, when, when shall I assemble again with God's people? And the sons of Korah, when can I lead God's people in corporate praise? Well, because he's not there, verse three, he expresses his grief. He says, my tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? All the God does is cry. He's drinking tears, not tea, because he is weeping. And the taunts of the enemies around him make things worse. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God, pal? Why are you up here in the north, in Jerusalem's all the way down uh, in the south? And, and why, why are you suffering like you are? Where is your God? Now, we have enemies. We have obviously enemies that come in the form of people, but we have an adversary that Peter says wants to destroy us and I would just remind you of that church uh, during this crisis that we have an enemy that would love to keep us down and dejected Lloyd-Jones in his book spiritual depression says the devil's one object is so to depress God's people that he can go to the man of the world and say they're God's people do you want to be like that obviously the whole strategy of the adversary of our souls he says of God's adversary is so to depress us and to make us look as this man looked when he was passing through this period of unhappiness. Where is your God? The enemy asks. His enemies conclude that God had abandoned him. That's what Job's friends said to him as well. It seemed as if God had departed. Well, verse 4, feeling deserted he thinks about better times in which he where he used to lead worship These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. He goes back to the time in which uh, there were great crowds of worshipers. He's thinking about the various festivals uh, that took place in Jerusalem like Passover or uh, the Feast of Booths or Pentecost and tries to encourage himself as he thinks about this time. This is not just bland nostalgia. He's he's thinking about past grace and letting it encourage him to press on and believe in future grace. And so he says in verse 5, while his soul is not lifted up as it should be, the first of these self-sermons, if you will, he preaches to his soul, Why are you cast down, O my soul? it's the kind of thing you see in like Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Like, come on, soul. (laughs) Wake up, soul. Bless the Lord. Uh, You have to do that sort of thing. You may sound strange if you do it out loud, but, but that's what the psalmist is doing. Spurgeon says, As though this were two men, the psalmist talks to himself. His faith reasons with his fears. His hope argues with his sorrows. His faith, he's preaching faith. In the presence of his fears, he's preaching hope in the middle of his sorrow. In other words, he's trying to preach himself out of the dumps. (laughs) And he's confident that the Lord will act. You notice that, I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. He knows God is faithful. This is a great statement of faith in the middle of despair. I shall praise him. John Piper wrote this in 2008. He says, I cannot tell you how many hundreds of times in the last 28 years at Bethlehem I have fought back the heaviness of discouragement with these very words. Hope in God, John. Hope in God. You will again praise him. This miserable emotion will pass. This season will pass. Don't be a downcast. Look to Jesus. The light will dawn. It was so central to our way of thinking and talking in the early 80s that we put a huge hope in God sign outside uh, the wall of the old sanctuary and became known around the neighborhood as the hope in God church. Well, I want to be that too, don't you? This miserable emotion, this miserable season will pass. Hope in God. He is my salvation, he says. And if you look at that word, my salvation, if you're reading an ESV down in... The footnote, number eight. I always like to draw attention to those footnotes. Uh, the salvation of my face. It's a very interesting uh, phrase here. Or the deliverance that comes from his face. It speaks of God's favor as God would make his face shine upon uh, an individual. And the psalmist is basically saying, if God will look upon favor, look with favor upon me, then this whole thing would change in a moment. If he would just be kind. If he would be gracious. Well, this is what we have to do when we're in these seasons. We preach to our soul, hope in God. Stanza two, he's feeling overwhelmed and forgotten. So it's the same idea. He's still dejected, but it's deepened now. Verse six says, "Um, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of the Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mazar. Now Mount Hermon uh, is in the far north. Uh, You basically got Dan to Beersheba, as you think about uh, the Holy Land. And up in Dan, up in the north, uh, there is this massive uh, uh, mountain range, set of mountains. Mount Hermon is there. If you you ever get to take a trip to Israel, you will undoubtedly go see uh, Mount Hermon because the dew and the snow feed into the Jordan River. It's a very, very significant uh, thing to see while you're there. Uh, And it's a long way from Jerusalem. Um, The last time I was there, it took a long time uh, for the bus to to get up there. And then we basically did a hiking trail up to uh, see Mount Hermon. And I led a devotion, I remember, about 10 years ago now on Psalm 42. And you can imagine, and through these woods and through these hills, deer uh, and, and waterfalls and, and, and all of these sorts of things. It's just absolutely a beautiful location. But it's a long way from Jerusalem. And this guy is up in the hills and he's reflecting upon uh, his, his desire to be in the temple. And he's crying out to God. And I do want you to notice that in verse uh, 6 where he says, I remember you. From, uh, the, from, the, uh, from the land of Jordan. He's crying to God. We give him credit for that. So this is, this is a very instructive for us. If you're down, if you're discouraged, you cry to God. A friend told me this week, if you're complaining about God, it's a sin. If you're complaining to God, it's a psalm. <laughs> and that's what he's doing right here, right? He's, he is crying out to God. And he turns to water imagery, which wouldn't have been hard to do uh, from that area verse 7, to describe his feeling of being overwhelmed. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. The waterfalls with its rocks, breakers, and waves, and noise portray his condition. The streams that form the Jordan pass through several waterfalls and cascades and rushing waters where deep calls to deep. Water hits water. And the breakers and waves would pass over rocks or even somebody who wants to uh, to take a dip in the water. He feels overwhelmed by it. It's the same kind of expression that Jonah uses in Jonah chapter 2, verse 3. These deathly forces overwhelm him. It's a picture of chaos. But notice there's a subtle statement of faith even in the middle of the chaos in verse 7 as the psalmist calls them your waterfalls. They are your breakers. He recognizes though he feels overwhelmed that God is sovereign over everything. and That is a good thing to know. It's not a waterfall outside the control of God. It's not a breaker outside of the control of God. It's a statement of faith. So in his despair, verse 8, he remembers God's hesed, his steadfast love. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love. At night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. This statement of God's steadfast love is a statement of belief in God's care, in God's protection, in God's blessing. God, in the presence of his enemies, Outside of where he wants to be physically, he he still recognizes God's hesed, God's faithfulness, God's faithful love, his loyal love toward him. And he sings praises to God. Sings praise to God at night, prayer to the God of my life. It's very important to, to sing and to pray in these dark seasons. He says he does this to the God of his life. New Testament, parallel, Colossians chapter 3, Paul says Christ is your life. <laughs> now, if you're not a Christian, you need to see this, that we're not, you know, we're not asking you to consider adding a little religion to your, to your life. We're asking you to make Christ your life. And even in hard times, he's there. He's with us. He never leaves us. We sing to Him at night in our dark moments. We pray to Him in the morning in our dark moments. This is what it looks like for God to be your life. Verse 9, there's more reflection on the character of God as He calls God His rock, which would be important in a place with a lot of water and feeling overwhelmed. You need something to stand on. You need a rock. And He knows His God to be His rock, but even so, He's perplexed. If God is his rock, then why is he enduring these things? So he poses the question. He feels forgotten. Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? He's been abandoned, he feels like. He hasn't been, but he feels that way. And he says here he's in the presence of these godless people who taunt him. His whole being, his bones in verse 10. Uh, is distraught. He says, as with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? And in this feeling of desertion, he once again preaches to himself. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. One of the things we want to uh, remember when we're in these down times, that's, that's how good Donnie and I are together. He knew I needed water and I didn't even give him the clue. <clears throat> he can tell by my voice. <laughs> One of the things we preach to ourselves when we feel abandoned is the fact that we are not abandoned. Mm, we have to take truth to our emotions. We have to take uh, the words of Jesus, uh, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, lo I'm with you always even to the end of the age. Mm. Christ gave up his life as he said, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me on the cross so that you and I will never be abandoned? And that's good news. We preach that to ourselves. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. He's with you. Third stanza, final stanza. Deliver me so that I can attend public worship is my heading. Now this has an intensified plea. Verse 1, vindicate me, O God and defend my cause against ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me." He knows God to be powerful enough to vindicate him, God powerful enough to defend him and prosecute the enemies and to deliver him, so he cries to him. He bases his prayer on his understanding of God and he speaks more of the character of God in verse 2 as he says, "...for you are the God in whom I take refuge." So already in this psalm, we've, we've learned a lot about God, about him being our rock, about him being our refuge, about him being the living God. And here he is, the refuge. He's perplexed. Again, it's a statement about the nature of God, like chapter 42, verse 9, God is rock, and then it's followed by a question. Here, God is refuge, and it's followed by a question. He knows who God is, and that's why he is perplexed. When he says, why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? And so in his darkness, in verse 3, he asks God to send light and truth. Send out your light and your truth and let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. <clears throat> the light of God is to, means to experience redemption and rescue. Uh, you see that in uh, various places. Isaiah chapter 60, for example, where the light is spoken of as liberty and salvation and redemption. Truth here speaks of God's covenantal faithfulness to his people. Both of these are expressions of God's hesed, of his love. If God will send his light, that is his rescue, and if God will express his faithfulness to him, his covenantal faithfulness, Then this this worshiper will be able to go to the holy hill, to Jerusalem. He will be delivered and he will attend corporate worship again. Verse 4, he says, If God will come to his rescue, it will lead him to great joy. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. So God is the living God. God is our rock. God is our refuge. God is our joy. To God, my exceeding joy, I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. He can already imagine himself playing his instrument to God in corporate worship. He's longing for that. And so he preaches to himself a final time, giving his current situation with the same message. The situation hasn't changed, but there's hope. He's perplexed, but God is present, God is with him, and we have to preach to ourselves all the time who God is and what God has done. And it's not hard, right, from a New Testament perspective. Look what God has done for us. I was talking to a man a couple of weeks ago, I was trying to take care of the the yard of the house we're trying to sell. And uh, he came over and we just started having a discussion. And he had some real questions about the problem of evil, about why uh, there's evil and sin in the world and so on. And I gave him an answer. Um, And then he said to me, uh, I just wish God would come down and show himself to us. (laughs) He really said that. (laughs) And I said, well, he has. Mm. He has shown himself to us. Mm. And God may not have answered every question that you and I have ever raised, but God has done something better than answer a question. He sent his son against whom there is no argument. (laughs) He is the yes and the amen. And we preach this to our soul. Well, this is a a great mascal, Psalm 42 and 3. And I just want to point out real quick five brief lessons. These are not new ideas. I've already mentioned them, but let me just gather them up for you. What does this psalmist do in spiritual depression? What does he do in this funk that he's in? Number one, he laments. He laments. Uh, I think it's about a third of the psalms are lament. And it's hard to know because the psalmists go up and down in various psalms. There are a lot of laments. So do that. Get honest with God. You can voice your frustration. You can voice your confusion you can ask questions. But with all of this lament, he also expresses confidence in God. And because of God's character and because of God's past performance, he can look forward to future grace. And that's why Paul would say in the New Testament things like, um, he who did not spare his own son for us, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? What he did in the past drives us to hope in the future. If he's going to do that, we're going to be all right. So it's lament and hope. It's lament and faith in the same passage. Lament and faith in the same heart. That's normal. Secondly, he not only laments, but he thinks about the nature and character of God. Now, you have to do this. And at times, that's why the psalmist seems you know, kind of a spiritual schizophrenia but he's not. This is normal. you recall 2 Corinthians chapter 4 where Paul says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, not driven to despair. Persecuted, not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. These ideas look mutually exclusive, but they're not. They're part of the paradox of the Christian faith. We lament and hope at the same time. Because Christ is enough right now, and because He will make all things new in the future, in the not yet, in the middle of our despair, we have hope. And to do that, you have to think. You have to think about the nature and character of God. And I've already noted how He does this all throughout the psalm, calling attention to God's Hesed, to God's salvation, to God's nature, to God's light and truth, to God's sovereignty. He forces himself to think. God hasn't changed, and he reminds himself of that. And I remind you this morning, my friends, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and no virus is going to change that. So we have to stop and think. Thirdly, he remembers past grace, past experiences of public worship. These experiences that we get to have when we are together like the sons of Korah had, are holy reminders that God is real, that God is gracious, that God is the living God, and these past experiences give us hope for the future. Number four, he sings. <clears throat> I already called attention to that. Verse eight, at night his song is with me. What kind of song this is? A, this is what you might call a praying song. It's a lament. It's a pleading song. It's a faith-filled song. I thought about Paul and Silas. As they're in prison, Mm -hmm. they're praying and singing hymns to God. Luther once told his associate, Philip, Come, Philip, let us sing a psalm and drive away the devil. (laughs) And on another occasion, Come, Philip, let's sing the 46th psalm. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we have to do that, don't we? We have to sing ourselves out of prison. We have to sing uh, away the devil and he's singing in the presence of these enemies. Finally, I've noted it over and over, he preaches to his soul. What do we do in these times of spiritual funk? This worshiper would not concede to his enemies, and he would not concede to his emotions. And let me encourage you not to concede to your enemy, the devil, your enemies, people around you, and not to concede to your emotions which are up and down and are all over the place. On this side of the cross, we know the greatest source of hope. As the psalmist says, hope in God. We say that Jesus Christ, in the words of Peter, is our living hope. We say in the words of Titus, He is our blessed hope. In the words of Hebrews chapter 6, we have a steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope. Or in 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, everyone who has this hope purifies himself, even even as he himself is pure. So we have to take ourselves up and say something like, self, if God is for you, who can be against you? Self, nothing will separate you from the love of Jesus Christ, ever. Self, I will see the face of Jesus Christ. Self, I'm going to grieve and lament in this moment, but self, one day I will see Jesus Christ and my faith will end in sight and he will wipe away tears from my face and death will be no more and all viruses will be stopped on that day. That's when all viruses will stop. Well, that's our great hope. and That's what we do when we're in these really hard moments. You know, verse 2, you see another footnote there can be translated, When shall I see the face of God? And in the New Testament, we have the answer to that. As Jesus said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. The glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We will see the one who's greater than the temple. There's coming a day, John says, when the Lamb will lead us to the fountain of living waters, and he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. So my friends, I pray that God would give you a great thirst for Jesus today. That you would drink deeply from the river of his delights. And he would give you a great thirst for that day when we see his face. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for the honesty of the Bible and the hope of the Bible. Help us, grant us grace to preach truth to our emotions. Grant us joy, a real joy that flows from the gospel. Even now, as we sing, may you help us to sing in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of frustration, in the midst of discouragement, in the midst of grief. And may you bless your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Everybody said, Amen.